There are 13 ranked teams that are going on the road this weekend. Now, 13 for some of you, maybe that's a lucky number. For me, it's not so much. So will there be chaos? We're going to find out. Hello and welcome to Always College Football. Today is a Thursday edition, which means nothing but breakdowns. You know how we like to set the table for what will be a terrific week five here in college football. We have a bunch of interesting matchups. I've referenced it already. 13 ranked teams going on the road this week. Might be chaotic, might be wild. A lot of people love these ranked teams on the road, but be careful. Home field is a powerful tool for the underdog, it should be fascinating. I'm Greg McElroy. Along with me, as always, is Jake Garcia, Mark Kubiak, and Jack Foster. We appreciate you being here. Please continue to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. We also see the reviews. It means a lot to us when you guys write us a review. We read them all, and we really appreciate you guys telling your friends about what we're doing here at Always College Football. So we have a comprehensive breakdown this week. A bunch of games that we want to get to. Utah and Oregon State going to set the table on a Friday night. Notre Dame at Duke should be fascinating. USC, Colorado. Can Colorado bounce back in what should be a must-win situation for USC, <laughs> given how Colorado looked a week ago? Florida, Kentucky is a fascinating one. Texas has to face off against Kansas, a team that's playing really well on both sides of the football. LSU and Ole Miss, must-win game for Ole Miss to kind of keep their sights looking forward to the potential of getting to the SEC championship for the first time. So a lot of interesting games that we break down in depth, but there's also a bunch too that will give you something to look for. One, two things maybe for each of the other games that you might be interested in as well. So without much further ado, let's dive in. It's our breakdowns for week five of the college football season. This weekend's preview is brought to you by Dr. Pepper. It's not college football season without the delicious taste of an ice cold Dr. Pepper. The ones fans deserve. Utah, Oregon State. Let's get things kicked off on a Friday. Why wouldn't we, right? What a terrific matchup we have. There's buzz. There's a lot of buzz right now about Cam Rising's potential return. We know this game still, though, even regardless of the quarterback play, whether or not he plays or not, we know the game's going to be decided between these two teams at the line of scrimmage. The line's interesting, I might add. You have an undefeated team ranked in the top 11 on the road, and they're three-and-a-half-point dogs. It's just, uh, just be careful. Be careful. When assessing this game, because it feels like all the public money is going to be on the side of the Utah Utes, understandably so. Let's talk about the keys of the game. It should come as no surprise. When you think about Oregon State, you think about Utah, you think about the line of scrimmage, man. It's really it's strength versus strength. This is exactly what you want. It's old school college football. It's not 1990s, but it's probably as close to the 90s as we're going to get to where it's all about physical prowess along the line of scrimmage man it's gonna be awesome Let's start with Oregon State offensively we know that they rely heavily on the run game they're gonna try to establish themselves along the line of scrimmage and I also think too when you think about what Utah has defensively it's gonna be remarkably difficult anyone that watched the UCLA game last week knows that this will not be a cakewalk this will be a remarkable challenge probably as good of a challenge as Oregon State will face all year long. I do think, however, Oregon State, offensive line, among the best in college football. So it's good against good, and it's going to be awesome to watch. As far as what Utah has up front defensively, you got Junior Tafuna, you got Jonah Ellis. Ellis by himself, 19 tackles, five and a half sacks, and a PBU. Those are the two guys up front that are just complete game wreckers. I mean, I don't know how else to really describe it. They are game wreckers. And when you think about what Oregon State has as a run threat, we know their run game's amazing. They're going to use a lot of numbers. They're going to try to identify mismatches. You're going to see some pistol. You'll see eye formation. You'll see single back. You'll see shotgun. You'll see teams that are, you'll see them get spread out in four receiver sets and hand it off. Uh, you'll see multiple tight ends that are very, very effective as well. Uh, this is really an offense, though, that wants to run the stretch zone. That's what they are. They want to run off tackle. They want to stretch you horizontally and allow their great, great running backs, Damian Martinez in particular, to be one cut and get north and south. It's an awesome group. I love the way they play. I love their identity offensively. Don't sleep on Fenwick, too, the backup running back. He's also excellent. 
But I found one quote to be very interesting in this game. And if you think for a second, this will not be used as billboard material for the Utah Utes. Quote, this is from Damian Martinez on the Utah defensive line. And by the way, I don't think this was a smart thing to say. I just don't. <laughs> okay, I just don't. They are, quote, just another team, honestly. Yeah, they're good, but I believe in our low line. I'm confident in our low line. I'll take us against anybody, end quote. It's not the second part that I have the problem with. I believe in our line. I'm confident in our line. I'll take them against anybody. That part doesn't bother me. But think for just one second. You think Kyle Whittingham maybe brought this to his defense's attention? Quote, they're just another team, honestly, end quote. Well, back-to-back Pac-12 champs, a couple of Rose Bowl appearances, and a defense right now that's given up 51 yards a game on the ground. So probably wouldn't have said that. (laughs) Just saying, okay. That's the breakdown in the trenches with Oregon State's offensive line against Utah's defensive line, probably the best matchup in the game. Can Utah take advantage of a poor secondary? That's the second big question. Because if we saw last week, Utah scored offensively on just one of 14 possessions. It was not great. You got to give UCLA credit. They hung in there pretty well. And Nate Johnson, I think, really struggled to kind of identify targets downfield. Uh, There were a handful of plays in which receivers were open. He either missed them or he threw off target and they had to adjust. So that, I think, is is not necessarily a huge aspect if Nate Johnson is the guy. However, there's buzz, there's reports that Cam Rising has been taking first-team reps throughout the course of this week. Obviously, Rising a better thrower, not quite the runner, but I would imagine that with him in the game, it will change drastically what Trent Bray, the defensive coordinator, does as far as their pre-snap looks. If Nate Johnson's in the game, sell it against the run. If Cam Rising's in the game, you better respect the pass, especially knowing what happened Last week, Cam Ward, the quarterback for Washington State, uh, completely picked apart Trent Bray's secondary. 404 yards, four touchdowns. Uh, A lot of that, by the way, coming in the first half and right from the get-go. I mean, Cam Ward, Kyle Williams, 63-yard touchdown. That was on the second offensive snap of the game. So this was an uncharacteristically bad performance from the Oregon State defense and Let's be honest. I think Washington State's passing attack is a little bit scarier right now than what we've seen from Utah up to this point, albeit hasn't been with Cam Rising. But if he's available, we'll see exactly how Trent Prey decides to defend. The other question in this game is, can DJ Uyunglele get it done? All right. We know that outside of the 50-yard bomb last week to Silas Bolden, the passing attack was kind of stagnant and a little bit sloppy. Now they found themselves a little bit at the end of the game. But this is not really a group that that is going to be built to play from behind. And obviously, Washington State, they get out, have a great first half. Cam Ward in the first half, 19-20, absolutely unconscious. And it put a lot of pressure on DJ Uyunglele to kind of climb his way back into the game. They got better as the game went along, but the stats were kind of skewed because of how well they played in the final drive or two. So can DJ Uyunglele, in the event in which their rushing game is shut down, can he do it himself? And then, of course, kind of reference it already, which team's going to get off to the faster start? Um, neither team right now uh, are great, great teams throwing the football. So that means if a team does get into a throw first situation, it is not likely to end well. This is an impossible game to predict. I'm going to go with my preseason uh, assessment that Oregon State is a remarkably difficult place to play, but I think Utah wins the game. I think Utah wins the game. I, I free t- Preseason, I loved Oregon State, but DJ not seeing the field great the last couple of weeks did finish with the flurry. I think Utah wins the game. They've just found a way to do it every week in spite of their quarterback play. If Cam Rising returns, which I think he will, this is a game I think they will probably get. Let's go to the ABC Prime game, Notre Dame at Duke, game day at Duke for the first time. How about with the job that Mike Elko's done? It's truly remarkable. Guys, 13 of four as the head coach at Duke. It's it's crazy, man. It's absolutely crazy. Such a great defensive mind. So that starts with the first question. Mike Elko and Duke like to employ a lot of really interesting disguises. They do zone pressures and they know where your answers are. So they have a defender waiting right there for your answer. So if they bring two guys defensively to Sam Hartman's right, and his outlet is a quick throw to the right. Guess who's waiting right there? A corner standing right outside about to collapse on his outlet. So 
Can Mike Elko and Duke used pre-snap disguises and pressures to confuse Sam Hartman. Now, I think when you look at what Sam Hartman's provided, I, I thought that there'd be maybe more of a downfield threat this year. I thought that might be kind of where Notre Dame would evolve. They would have a strong run game. They'd be really good off play action. They'd be able to crush you on the downfields. Now, that hasn't really materialized just yet. But one thing that I think Sam Hartman's done a good job of is being really accurate, making good decisions, being sound in his fundamentals, and kind of methodically working this offense down the field. It was on display last week, but they, of course, let themselves down on a couple of fourth down stops. Either way, this is going to be an interesting one to evaluate the wide receiver position. Jaden Thomas right now, questionable with a hamstring injury. His backup, Deion Colsey, is out. The Irish have five wide receivers that are on scholarship that are going to be available. A little thin at that position right now. The good news is Mitchell Evans has come into his own. A nice performance last week by the tight end, showcasing sure-handedness and a willingness to work the middle and uncover. And we already know that Holden stays can be a matchup problem for defense because of the side-speed combination there as kind of the H-back move tight end. And they can line them up at fullback as well. But it will be interesting how... Mike Elko disguises coverage. Going against a veteran quarterback, it's one thing to confuse Cade Klubnik, who was starting his second career game when he played against the Blue Devils. Had played last year, but it's a whole other thing to confuse a sixth-year starting quarterback that's one of the all-time greats, statistically speaking, in college football. The big thing also for Duke when you play against Notre Dame, you know what you're going to get. You're going to get man coverage. It's as simple as that. It is. It's very simple. You know exactly what's coming. You're going to get man coverage. Can they create enough separation with their wide receivers to beat the man coverage that they're going to get from the Irish secondary? Jalen Calhoun, extremely consistent for this Duke offense. Very, very consistent. Samir Hagan's is kind of a solid slot receiver that can create some issues for you as well. And then Jordan Moore, who clearly has developed a rapport with Riley Leonard. Very interesting, I might add, because he was the guy that was battling with Riley Leonard in the preseason of 22 to be the starting quarterback. Well, now he's transitioned to wide receiver, and you can tell an offseason worth of work has allowed him to become more polished. But anytime you move a quarterback to wide receiver, that receiver naturally, Jordan Moore in this case, has a great understanding of of space, has a great understanding of coverage, knows how to uncover, knows how to find the vacancies defensively, but against man coverage, will he be quick enough, sudden enough, uh, dialed in enough with Riley Leonard to be able to uncover? Riley Leonard's going to have to be very accurate in this game. He's going to get a lot of man coverage. There's going to be Notre Dame defensive backs draped on his wide receivers, and he's going to have to fit it into some tight windows. He's also gotten the ball out really quickly, which I would imagine is going to be very important in this game as well. Now, while the sack numbers, the pressure numbers, all those things for Notre Dame have been up and down this year, I know that on paper, people have really praised Duke's offensive line. I don't think they're a war daddy group. I think they're fine. I think they're serviceable. I don't think they're reliability. And against this group, if I watched the Clemson tape, that offensive line was getting pushed back and Riley Leonard was getting that ball out immediately. Quick decisions, fast decisions, decisive and accurate on a lot of the underneath throws. So will he be able to do that? And if he does have to get the ball out quickly, will the separation be good enough against Cam Hart? who's at one corner, and Benjamin Morrison, who's at the under, other corner, who I think as a tandem are probably as good as you'll see across the board in the sport. Another question mark, are Riley Le Leonard's legs going to continue to be a factor? As we saw in this long second half touchdown run against Clemson, Leonard's legs are one of the best attributes that he has. I mean, really does a good job in being able to, if nothing's there, he can tuck it and run. He can extend plays. He's savvy enough in the pocket to be able to negotiate pass rushers and find a crease to be able to exploit you. That'll be massive. And as you can see how Notre Dame played against Brennan Armstrong, who I think as far as skill set, I think Leonard's better than Brennan Armstrong, but as far as skill set and capabilities with his legs, that's something that can be beneficial. Well, those linebackers for Notre Dame, they were all over Brennan Armstrong that whole game. The second he left the pocket, boom, they immediately triggered and they forced him to make a quick decision. So that will be something I watch as well. The other thing as well, second half, 
who wins the second half? Because Duke, they have pitched four straight second half shutouts. The only touchdown they've given up against Clemson was on a muffed punt that was recovered at their own 16. So they've been really good in the second half. And then the other thing I'm watching too, the hangover effect, man. The hangover effect. Because Notre Dame last year against Ohio State, Ohio State beat them twice. Now you could tell me, hey, Marshall gashed them. Yeah, Marshall ran the ball really well. But was that more about what Marshall was? As you saw as the season went along, Marshall was very human. Or was that about Notre Dame losing their quarterback in that game and playing horrible, horrible run defense that was in some ways unrecognizable? I think it was because Ohio State, they were lingering, they were licking their wounds, and they didn't show up ready to play against the Thundering Herd last year. I think they get that fixed this year. I think they get that flipped this year. You think about Notre Dame. That was arguably the most debilitating loss since, gosh, 2005. Uh, I'm not going to reference the Bush push game because I, I know that Kubiak gets all bent out of shape, but that was probably the most heartbreaking Notre Dame loss that they've had in nearly 20 years. So I won't reference the Bush push game. That's not fair. That's low hanging fruit. But either way, that I think is something that's going to be fascinating about this team. Can they bounce back? Will they bounce back? Or will Ohio State beat them twice? I like Notre Dame to bounce back big in this game. I love the matchup for them. I think they get the job done. And what I think is going to be a relatively low-scoring affair. I think both defenses will play well. I like Notre Dame kind of like a 24-10, 24-13 type of ball game or in that vicinity. A game that will not be low-scoring is USC against Colorado. Now, USC is perfect 16-0 against Colorado. And this, of course, will be the final matchup between the two before USC heads to the Big Ten. I think this is the best quarterback matchup of the weekend. You have Caleb Williams, reigning Heisman Trophy winner. I don't think I need to necessarily walk you through everything he's capable of doing. I think a lot of people have seen him play, understand what he can do. The guy is sensational. And albeit up to this point, there hasn't been, there hasn't really been a huge platform for him. It's not really their fault. It's just uh, they haven't really played against super quality competition up to this point. So Maybe if you look at his stats, you're still blown away, but you're probably thinking, well, what about the level of competition? Which is fair. Don't worry. Their schedule will strengthen. We're going to find out all we need to know about SC here in the coming weeks. But Shador Sanders coming off of a disappointing performance last week, how does he bounce back? Because that game last week, albeit, yes, he was far from flawless. He didn't have a lot of help in that game against Oregon. All right. So how do we find help for Shador Sanders? Colorado has to run the football. They, they have to. And I know Shador's great. Their weapons are great. They have elite skill on the perimeter. But they also have elite skill at running back. And Dylan Edwards, he's going to be a star. There's, there's no doubt about that. No, he's not the biggest guy in the world. He's a perimeter guy for sure. And the offensive line has certainly struggled. But they have three rushing touchdowns so far this year. All right? That's second to last. Second to last at 55.8 yards per game. They averaged less than two yards a carry. Now you factor in sacks. That all is a factor here in college football. But they got to run the football because if you're not running the football, guess what the defensive events could do? If they're not respecting the run, they'll pin their ears back and they'll come right after their quarterback. And clearly that has not been a recipe for success as far as keeping Shador Sanders upright throughout the course of the game. That's the next question. Can Colorado's offensive line hold up? We know that Shador is amazing. Uh, we know that he's played well under pressure in the past. But last week against against Oregon. It just, it was too overwhelming. I mean, 14 quarterback hurries, seven sacks. Uh, he was basically running for his life all game. And that I think is something that will be an issue because if you look at SC, they've gotten better up front. I think they've done a good job with their edge defenders. They've brought in some guys that can really play at a high level. So I think that will be something that's very, very important for Colorado as they navigate throughout this game. Uh, we know that Colorado's given up 23 sacks this year. That's 132nd out of 133 teams. Uh, they averaged nearly six sacks per game. And so far this year, they have eight sacks against Arizona State last week. And they had 14 tackles for a loss. So they are getting better. And you're going to say, against who? Fair enough. <laughs> I won't push back against that. Arizona State's not great. But I have seen growth in the front seven defensively for USC as far as their attacking nature is concerned. Colorado has to manufacture some big plays. They obviously did so in weeks one, two, and three. Zay Weaver is amazing. A little bit hobbled coming off the field late in the Oregon game. He leads the Pac-12 and is fourth in the country with 34 receptions, 461 yards. 
So he, if he is not at 100%, that is of concern. I'll be watching him a little bit early. Obviously, just got hurt last week. But if he can bounce back, that's a huge boost to their depth of the skill that they have at wide receiver. But if he can't go, then I would anticipate with him being unavailable, Travis Hunter, he's saying he's playing. I'll, I don't think that's likely, but if he does, obviously massive boost. But now you're without potentially your top two weapons on the perimeter. Well, that means Jimmy Horn has to have a big day. And he's very, very athletic laterally, more of a slot guy that he can make you miss. If you get the ball in his hands, he's got 27 catches for 243 and a couple scores. And then one other guy that I think you need to know, Javon Antonio. He's a big body wide receiver, has been taken under his wing by Terrell Owens in the offseason. They say that his his skill set resembles that of T.O., which is a pretty dang high compliment, naturally. Um, he might be forced into maybe an increased workload. Now, he was injured early in the year, got a little burn last week at Oregon. And with those guys potentially being out, I could see him stepping up and making some opportunities for himself. I have referenced the improvements that USC has made defensively. However, they still don't tackle very well. And that has been a little bit of an issue. If you look last week, they struggled. You look at the end of last year, they struggled. They really have not done a great job as far as giving up yards after catch and giving up yards after contact. They got to do a better job tackling because this is a group with Colorado that if you give them some space and you miss, they'll take it the distance for sure. And then the final question here is, how does Colorado stop Caleb Williams? First of all, you can't stop Caleb Williams. You can contain him maybe for a quarter, but you cannot stop him. It's just not going to happen. And the emergence of the SC run game is starting to really take some of the pressure off what Caleb Williams is forced to do. Marshawn Lloyd has been terrific, averaging 11 yards a carry, only 15 carries against Arizona State. A lot of people are wanting to see more. And Colorado giving up quite a bit on the ground defensively. They're giving up about 207 yards a game, about five and a half yards a carry. So I would anticipate a heavy load of Marshawn Lloyd, which was only going to make things easier for Caleb Williams to attack downfield. They're right now the Trojan offense, number three in the country in total yards, and they're going against a defense that is number 128. So this is going to have to be a track meet for Colorado. USC is going to score. Can Colorado keep pace? The one thing I would say that Colorado has done a really good job of defensively up to this point is the fact that they've created a lot of turnovers. They're fifth in the country with seven picks. They have 1.75 turnover margin per game. That's fifth nationally. And if they're going to hang around and make this game competitive for 60 minutes, they're going to have to be plus two, possibly even plus three in the turnover margin. I like SC to win this game comfortably, but I do think it's going to be a much higher scoring affair than what we saw last week by the Buffaloes against the Oregon Ducks. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day. But sometimes when you're traveling for business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any. You know what happens? You grab a cup of coffee and skip the meal entirely. We've all been there. But if you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you can enjoy their free bright side breakfast featuring delicious baked goods, fruit, eggs, yogurt, and waffles. And really, who doesn't want to start their day with a fresh, hot waffle? Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. Let's head up to Kentucky for what I think is a rivalry game. Maybe more so for the Wildcats than the Gators, but Florida now travels to Lexington to take on the undefeated Kentucky Wildcats. Now, what's crazy is that Kentucky's favored in this game. This would snap a streak of 34 straight games where Florida was favored 
against Kentucky. The last time the Wildcats were favored was in 1988. They were a one-point favorite that day. They lost by five. And the last time Kentucky was favored by two or more points was in 1978. They lost by two. They were favored by four. So it's not often that we see Kentucky as the favorite taking on the Gators. Here are the question marks in the game. Can Graham Mertz continue to stay really efficient? He's completing nearly 78% of his passes. That leads the SEC. That's fourth in college football behind J.J. McCarthy, Bo Nix, and Dylan Gabriel. Uh, he's going against DBs that were untested coming into the season, unproven coming into the season. The corners had four combined starts coming into this year, but Andrew Phillips and Maxwell Hairston have really done a pretty good job in these first few weeks, albeit against lesser competition. I look at what Graham Mertz has faced, though. I think that Graham Mertz has seen Utah. Graham Mertz has seen Tennessee. We're not really, at this point, totally sure what Kentucky has. This will be by far their biggest test as far as the quality of personnel that they're going to face in man-to-man situations. I think Graham Mertz has done a great job. Now, they're not airing it out. They're not taking a ton of shots. He's being efficient. He's working the underneath stuff. And Billy Napier's done a good job of keeping things in check and not putting too much on his shoulders. Can Florida's defense keep rolling? Uh, year one under Austin Armstrong, they're number one in the SEC, fourth in the Power Five, fifth in the FBS in total defense. 245 yards a game given up. Through four games last year, they'd allowed 424 yards a game. So they are way improved from where they were a year ago. The first year, D.C. is doing a great job. The one issue for Florida up to this point, and we'll talk about this in a minute as it relates to Devin Leary, they've only forced one turnover. And and that's not really what you're looking for. That's tied for the fewest in the FBS. The one way that you've been able to attack Kentucky the last two years has been really attacking their offensive line. And the offensive line for Kentucky has done a pretty good job this year, relatively speaking. Now, granted, last year they gave up 47 sacks. This year they've given up four. So over the course of a 12-game season, they're on pace to give up 12. Granted, the competition will ramp up significantly here in the next few weeks, but so far they've done an adequate job. Now, part of that has to do with Devin Leary extending plays and keeping things alive because there have been several times where if it was a statuesque quarterback, it's probably a sack. But Devin Leary has done a really good job of running around and extending plays and kind of helping that offensive line out because that is a group that has consistently struggled in the last handful of years. Then you think about what Devin Leary has provided this Kentucky offense. Liam Cohen, the new offensive coordinator, well, new, new, he's, it's year one on stint two because he was, of course, here two years ago, was gone with the LA Rams last year. Now he's back. The one thing that they have not done a great job of I think, is they haven't really been a very efficient offense. They're kind of boom or bust. They're big plays. They're pushing the ball down the field. If you actually look at just the shot sheet with where Devin Leary is throwing the football, right now, 45% of his attempts, 45% of his attempts are 11 yards or more downfield. 20%, nearly 20% of his attempts are 20 yards or more downfield. So this is a big play offense. I mean, they are trying to push the ball down the field. I think they need to work some of the underneath. They need to work some of the stuff at the line of scrimmage just to keep themselves in manageable situations. Yeah, it's great to take shots, but your quarterback's completing sub 60%. It's good that he's got good high yards per attempt, but man, you you need to keep the chains moving because if you get an obvious passing situations against Florida, against Georgia, against some of the teams that they're going to face in the SEC East, that's not going to be a a winning recipe. They're going to have to take their shots, sure, but not with as much not with the, as much aggressiveness as they've had in the first few weeks. So I think that is going to be really really important for Devin Leary to be more efficient, to be willing to take the check down, to be willing to take the underneath. Not every ball needs to be a home run. And that I think is the next step of evolution to keeping this offense moving a little bit and making sure they don't get into a difficult situation against some of the defensive lines, against still what I think is a relatively unproven offensive line. Kentucky's got great weapons. Kentucky's got an elite running back in Ray Davis. And I think Devin Leary's best football in a Kentucky uniform is in front of them. I actually think they get it done at home this weekend. It's going to be a chaotic environment. It's going to be a loud environment. I think Kentucky pulls off a big win for their program to set up what would likely be an undefeated matchup against Georgia next week 
in one of the games of the weekend in college football. Kansas goes on the road to Texas, two teams that are 4-0. A couple of questions that need to be asked about this one. I'll be on the call. Very much looking forward to being there alongside Sean McDonough and Molly McGrath. Kansas has an excellent secondary. Really good. We know that Texas has elite wide receivers, elite weapons, really all over the place. Whittington's elite on third down, just a really solid, reliable target. A.D. Mitchell has great length and speed and has created some deep balls down the field. Xavier Worthy is just an incredible, incredible freak as far as get the ball in his hands, let him run, let him win downfield, route running, just a great, great weapon in the passing game. You add in Sanders at tight end, and you got everything that you could possibly want there for Texas as they take the field. But I do think that this Kansas secondary, Kobe Bryant and others, this is a group that's really, really good. I do think it's going to be a question. Can Kansas kind of eliminate the big plays and put some pressure on Quinn Ewers? Kansas is different up front this year. They have not been very good defensively the last couple of years, but you go back and you watch this group compared to last year's group. Devin Phillips, Big addition on the interior. They have two other transfers that are playing along the defensive line. They're all playing pretty high-level football, which is resulting in a bunch of tackles for loss and a bunch of sacks and a bunch of pressure on the opposing quarterback. So can they put some pressure on Quinn Ewers? Another big question. Can Texas get off to a decent start at home? I mean, goodness gracious, alive. I mean, Steve Sarkeesian even joked in his Monday press conference, like, should we just have our fans make a lot of noise to make it feel like a road environment? Because the two games on the road, they've been lights out in both in Tuscaloosa and Baylor. But the two games at home, it's been slow starts. It's been a little sloppy. They've had some pre-snap infractions. I'm not sure what the deal is. So that, I think, is worth noting because if Kansas is in this game early and the longer this game goes, the more pressure there's going to be on Texas knowing what's at stake for them to potentially chase a championship for the first time in a really long time. This game's going to come down to two things more significantly than anything else. Third down and red zone. So far, Texas, they've had 16 trips inside the opponent's 20-yard line. They have just eight touchdowns. Uh, They have six field goals. They did miss a 26-yard field goal last week at Baylor, but only Cincinnati and Baylor have a worse percentage in the Big 12 when it means turning red zone penetrations into touchdowns. So they got to be really good in the red zone offensively. But the good news is for Texas, that their defense has been elite for the opposing offense in the red zone. They're number two in all of college football on that side of the ball. So that will be significant. And the other thing too, third downs. Texas right now is struggling on third down. Now their offense has had some great moments this year. We know that creating big plays, doing some big things. They're converting just 37% of their third down attempts. That's 92nd out of 130 in the FBS. And then on the other side, Kansas, they are number one in the country when it comes to third down conversions, 60.5%. So that'll be now Kansas's defense, not as good on third down. Texas's defense, really good on third down. They've given up just 18 to 59. That's 30%. They're 18th in college football and force and uh, have also also forced seven turnovers on third down as well. So I think that will be something that's really mindful. Obviously, third down, obviously red zone. Can they pressure Quinn Ewers? And can that Kansas secondary, arguably the strength of the entire team outside of their quarterback, Jalen Daniels, can they lock down to an extent this Texas wide receiver core that's deep and very versatile? And then finally, with our big game previews, let's go to Oxford Mississippi, where LSU will come to town. Now, you look at LSU since week two. Now, random week one against Florida State, a lot of positives in the first half, not so many in the second half. But Jaden Daniels, he has had 24 possessions since the start of week two. They've scored on 20 of those 24 possessions. 16 touchdowns, four field goals. Daniels right now leads the SEC in total yards per game, 372. Passing yards per game, 324. Efficiency, passing efficiency. 190 and points accounted for, which is 84. He is keeping defenses honest, but another thing he's doing a great job of the deep ball passing attack, man. I mean, he is really doing a phenomenal job finding Malik neighbors and Brian Thomas, who are now kind of molding into probably the top tandem of wide receivers in the sec. 
They have been lethal, lethal, and both are on pace right now to surpass the 1,000-yard mark and could eclipse 10 touchdowns as well. So the offense rolling the way it is has been massive, and it's in large part due to Jane Daniels' accuracy down the field to his outstanding weapons. They also have now found what I think is a guy that's only going to get better in Logan Diggs. It's kind of burst onto the scene. And if he can continue to emerge, it'll obviously take a ton of pressure off of Jaden Daniels. So we won't have to do as much. The big question in this game is, can Ole Miss run the football? I mean, Quinshawn Judkins has been in witness protection the last couple of weeks, man. He just hasn't been a factor. And I, I'm not sure exactly if this is the get right recipe for him and this offensive line, conversely, knowing what they're up against. You got Jordan Jefferson. You got Mason Smith. You got Makai Wingo. You got Parishant. I mean, that front four defensively is a real handful. Hey, real handful. And if you're not playing well up front, those guys are going to eat your lunch, just like they did against Mississippi State. Did not do a good job of that, by the way, against Arkansas. But for whatever reason, LSU kind of ebbs and flows. I would anticipate a better performance this week from LSU than what we got last week, especially in the front seven defensively. We already know that this is a game-changing defensive tackle unit. Mackay uh, Wingo and Mason Smith by themselves. So if those two guys start to get off, it's going to be a huge problem. But we all know where the issue has been for LSU. It's been in the secondary. Their secondary has blown coverages. If you actually look at some of the, some of the issues last week, I mean, Zy Alexander's coming up and not playing his assignment. Next thing you know, KJ Jefferson hits a tight end. And they're out the gate for a big touchdown. They've loaned coverages, they've had missed assignments, they've had miscommunications, and they've lost lost a lot of one-on-one battles. And if you go back to the Florida State game, there were a bunch of one-on-one battles that they just did not win. And the big question for LSU coming into the season was their secondary. Well, it's proven to be a reasonable question still, even four games into the season. And this group at wide receiver has been a little banged up from time to time. It's not a great spot to be in, uh, knowing that you're facing some some quality weapons and Jordan Watkins, Dayton Wade, and Trey Harris. These guys have been a little bit banged up, and Jackson Dart has been really efficient so far this year. He's a mobile quarterback that can extend plays and has been really accurate on some of the downfield stuff. Now, it didn't really help them a lot last week. He made a mistake or two last week as well. But either way, man, this will be, I think, the position group that might determine whether or not LSU can win a national championship. If they don't get better in the secondary, they're going to lose a couple more in the regular season, knowing the passing techs that they're likely to face. This game's in Oxford, but I think LSU gets it done. I have not at all been impressed with what I've seen from Ole Miss's rushing attack. And while I like Jackson Dart and I like the weapons and I love Judkins, if they can't get the running game going, this offense is never going to be able to hit its ceiling. And I'm not sure that they want to try to get it going against a defensive front that will absolutely tear you apart with their individual personnel matchups along the line of scrimmage. Some more games that we want to get through because they're really interesting matchups. And there's a thing or two I really want to see in a lot of these games. Start with Louisville traveling to NC State, another great Friday night matchup. NC State's offense been really inconsistent so far, really inconsistent. Casey Concepcion at slot receiver has been terrific. True freshman coming off of a great performance a week ago, 116 yards, a couple touchdowns. But they're going to have to keep pace with the Louisville group that right now is humming offensively. Now, how much do you take from the Boston College game? I don't know, but Jack Plummer looked like Tom Brady in the Boston College game, was just so deadly accurate, did a great job moving and adjusting. I think he feels the rush really well, so that will be interesting because this is an aggressive defensive group for NC State. They've always been aggressive. They're going to pin their ears back and try to come after you. They're going to cause disruption. They're going to fly around, and their intensity that they play with can sometimes be used against them. I think it might be used against them in this game, too, because there's one thing I've learned about Jeff Brom. The more aggressive you get, the more he's going to crush you. He's going to use screens and misdirection. They have every screen known to man. I would anticipate a heavy dose of those if I'm Tony Gibson, the defensive coordinator for NC State. The other thing that NC State has really strangely struggled with this year is stopping the run. And they've given up a ton of big plays, whether it's UConn, uh, whether it's Estime against Notre Dame. I mean, they've given up a ton of big plays on the ground, and that is not something that I'm used to seeing from NC State defensively. And guess what? Jawar Jordan is averaging almost 10 yards a carry. That's by far the most in the FBS. 
So you're going up against a group that has given up a bunch of big plays and you got a big play running back coming to town with a great offensive mind. It's going to be really interesting to watch. So I can't wait to see how NC State's defense plays against what I think is a really difficult offense to defend because of all the trickery and things that they'll throw at you that are a little bit obscure. Clemson and Syracuse. Clemson, of course, licking their wounds a little bit after the performance last weekend. Clemson could start 0-3 in conference play for the first time in 25 years. That year, they finished 3-8 overall, 1-7 in the ACC. So 1988 was a long, long time ago, but we also haven't seen this Clemson team lose consecutive games since 2011. They've had 158 consecutive games played without consecutive losses in the same season. That's the program's longest streak in school history and the nation's longest active streak. So it's been a while since we've seen this happen or the possibility of this happen. You have a great quarterback and Garrett Schrader going against what I think is an elite defensive unit. This Clemson defense, albeit they're two and two, it's not because of their defense's effort. They have done a great job this year. And I think this will be a tremendous test going against a quarterback that is grizzled veteran, man. This guy's played a lot of football. He's tough as nails. He's going to keep you in it. He's going to try to run as hard as he can. He's going to be a factor in the run game for sure. I don't think Syracuse has enough weapons to take advantage of some of the matchups that might be had on the perimeter, especially knowing that Andrew Wiggins is likely not going to be available. Nate Wiggins, excuse me. Nate Wiggins not going to be available for Clemson. He's out for a little bit. Thank goodness it's not a, a season ender. But either way, we'll be watching that group closely. And then finally, can Clemson finally just stop turning the football over? Key turnover last week. Obviously, the sack fumble by Deloach that tied the game up and ultimately sent it to overtime. Against Duke, they had multiple turnovers and miscues inside the Duke red zone. I, I just want Clemson to play a clean game. If you beat them, you beat them, fine. But don't let Clemson beat themselves, and they've beaten themselves twice, I think, up to this point. So it'll be fascinating to watch that. Oklahoma's been on an absolute tear, continue to play extremely well on the defensive side of the football, and they now get a chance to take on Iowa State. Now, since the start of the 2016 season, Iowa State and Oklahoma have played eight times. All eight games have been decided by 14 points or less. Now, Oklahoma's run game is the one thing that we haven't really seen yet. Now, Dylan Gabriel's been off awesome. The defense has been awesome. But we haven't really seen that run game get going just yet. So if that starts to go, then who knows what this offense might ultimately become. Iowa State is a top 50 rushing defense through the first four weeks. So maybe this isn't the spot to kind of get things moving in the right direction. But I want to see that Oklahoma rushing attack take a little pressure off the offensive passing game at some point here in the very near future. And I referenced the defense. Oklahoma's allowing eight and a half points a game this year. They allowed 30 points per game last year. That's the largest improvement in the FBS. All right, there's three touchdowns better, granted through just a few weeks, but they're three touchdowns better this year than they were a year ago. They have better depth. They have a better understanding of Brent Venable's system, and they're really playing that way. And I think because of the depth, they're able to rotate more guys, which is leading to stronger finishes because last year towards the end of game, they would dwindle off a little bit and they'd give up some chunk yardage. So they've gotten a whole heck of a lot better on that side of the ball. And then Dylan Gabriel looks way more comfortable here in Jeff Levy's system. I know he was with him in UCF, but you can just tell he is far more consistent. He's far way further along than where he was a year ago. He's completing 62% of his intermediate and deep passes. And that's a ridiculous number. Usually on your deep passes, hey, 40, 45%, that's about right. He's at 62. So he's doing a great job showing great command. But the final piece of this is, is Oklahoma looking ahead? Because it'd be hard for them not to be looking at Texas next week. Hard for them not to have that game circled. Do they focus on the task at hand? against Iowa State because looking ahead could get them got. They're in a game over the last eight years has been surprisingly really consistent. Oklahoma's had several playoff teams. Iowa State's been to New Year's Six Bowl games. They've had some good years, but Oklahoma has been the far better program. And this game, for whatever reason, has been unusually competitive for the last nearly a decade. So something worth noting there as well. What do I want to see from Tennessee hosting South Carolina? 
Well, I want to see the South Carolina offensive line against Tennessee defensive line. The Tennessee defensive line has been legit. Now, it didn't play great against Florida, but in the other three games, they were legit. They're third in the nation in sacks and tackles for loss. Now they're going against a South Carolina offensive line that has had their fair share of struggles. The best example naturally being against North Carolina. They did a little bit better job against Georgia, but I think Spencer Rattler, his processing and how quickly he was getting the ball out and making key decisions helped that group out quite a bit. You think about how Tennessee fared last year defensively. They didn't do anything well last year against this group. Spencer Rattler got hot. Next thing you know, they were playing from behind. It was just a perfect recipe. Well, Rattler has been hot all year. He's really been hot since he played Tennessee last year. I mean, he's coming off a performance last week where he was 18 of 20 against Mississippi State. He has two games this season. He's completed at least 90% of his passes. Okay, so he's had a couple picks. Those were against Georgia, but he's averaging over 300 passing yards a game and hitting 74% of his passes. This is one of the best passing attacks in the SEC. So will Tennessee be up to the task and can they slow them down with their pass rush? That's what I'm looking at. And I'm also looking to at Joe Milton. Last year, I went back and watched the game. South Carolina did a really good job just kind of keeping things in front of them. And when the ball was thrown underneath, they rallied up and made a big physically imposing hit. There wasn't a ton of yards after catch. There weren't a lot of big plays. Tennessee's offense kind of got into a bit of a funk there early in the game. It got going a little bit uh, there for, for a little while. But either way, this was just a bad, bad outing for Tennessee. They're a heavy favorite at home. I would imagine this is a revenge game. But man, I think South Carolina is playing really good football. I think this is going to be a heck of a matchup there on Rocky Top. I think Tennessee gets it, but either way, it's going to be one heck of a matchup between the two. And then Alabama traveling just a few miles to their west to take on Mississippi State. Very, very close game in proximity. These two teams are not fond of each other whatsoever. <laughs> Understandably so. Uh, Jalen Milrow, uh, I think he's been solid. You know, I mean, I think a lot of people and it, it's easy to kind of it's easy to kind of point to and, and and acknowledge some of the deficiencies that he occasionally plays with. OK, sure. I don't think he's great with his eyes. Uh, I think sometimes he can get a little bit fooled in coverage. I think sometimes he can get a little locked in. But by focusing on those things, you're ignoring the things he does well. I think he throws a really good deep ball. I think he's a really good athlete. Sometimes I think he maybe tries to do too much and should cut his losses just a little bit earlier. He tries to make a play, and that results in sacks from time to time. But he's done, I think, an adequate job while he's been the starting quarterback. And if he can continue to manufacture big plays, that's going to be the recipe for success for Alabama moving forward. Now, if you look at Alabama's offensive identity, you know they want to kind of be throwback in, in a way. They want to run the ball. They want to mix in some play action. They want to hit the deep shot on you know fresh set of downs when they cross the 50. Uh, I really think that they're starting to evolve to a point in which they're getting where they want to get. If you look at last week, for example, Alabama in the first half, just 115 yards. They're averaging 3.1 yards per play. They possessed the ball more than 20 minutes there in the first half of that football game. They, of course, had a turnover in the first half of that football game. So it wasn't pretty early. But in the second half, it's almost like they found themselves. They started to get things going. They were much more efficient throwing the football, six to seven. There in the second half against Ole Miss. They had a couple of penalties that that were areas where you would like to improve, but they did a pretty decent job. 241 yards of offense there in the second half of that football game, 8.3 yards per play. And of course, 18 points on three consecutive storing drives kind of put the distance between them and Ole Miss. And then that defense, which I think is really rounding into form, they were able to start to tee off against an offense that was pretty one-dimensional at that point. So I think Alabama right now is moving in the right direction. Still going to be watching very closely their offensive line. We all know the numbers, 16 sacks, 30 tackles for loss, 61 pressures, whatever. We all know the numbers. But I actually am starting to really believe that this group is going to potentially become the group that they always were supposed to become. Now, are they going to be quite as dominating as they maybe said they were going to be in the preseason? I don't know if they're going to get to that level, but they are getting closer to being a very capable group of being the backbone of the team and the identity of the offense. So I think Alabama in a tough spot right here, you go get a big win last week. You play great in the second half. Now you're going to a very hostile environment against a defense that is pretty stout up front, not 
great athletically as far as sideline to sideline. So Alabama's athleticism might be beneficial here. I would anticipate some short throws. I would anticipate some throws to the line of scrimmage, get Mississippi State running sideline to sideline. And then as you can tire them out, then you start to go north and south against them. But I think this defense does do a pretty good job. The big area where I think they can be taken advantage of is on the downfield passing attack. If you watch the LSU game, Malik Neighbors had a terrific outing, winning on slot fades, winning on slot verticals. That's where you have to get Mississippi State. That's where you have to beat them. You got to beat them over the top, and Jalen Milrow does throw a pretty dang good deep ball. So I think it's going to be a really tough physical game, and Alabama ultimately pulls away in the second half. Mmm. You smell that? That's the scent of fresh turf and freshly cracked Dr. Pepper which can only mean one thing. It's college football season. So block off your Saturdays and swipe a sweet Dr. Pepper from the mini fridge because there's a new season of high kicks, long throws, and Fansville commercial breaks to carry you all the way to the West Coast games. That's right. The fans are back and this year things are heating up. We're talking about hot takes, more heartbreak, more layers of face paint, Get ready to drink in all the drama this season with the help of the most delicious college football tradition there is, Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. Every college football season, Goodyear knows the importance of winning on the road. The road will always demand confidence, the confidence to handle whatever the journey brings and to perform under tough conditions. And just like the players and fans of college football, Goodyear is ready. Are you ready for the road? Visit Goodyear.com to find the right Goodyear tires for whatever road you're on this season. Goodyear, more driven. There are 13 ranked teams that are going on the road this weekend. Now, 13 for some of you, maybe that's a lucky number. For me, it's not so much. So will there be chaos? We're going to find out, and especially involving the number one and the number two ranked team in the country. They both go on the road. First true road test for both First test overall, if you're Michigan. So it might be a fascinating one to take a look at the Bulldogs and the Wolverines here moving into week five of the college football season. Georgia and Auburn, they go to Auburn. The point total, by the way, or the line in this game, 14. It's kind of an eye popper. Just going to say, especially after what Auburn did last week, things were not great for Auburn offensively. Of course, they did get a, a touchdown on a fumble return to the house, but Peyton Thorne took a bunch of sacks last week. Peyton Thorne held the football too long last week. That was against Texas A&M. And things were moving really fast for him. And he wouldn't cut it loose. And when he did cut it loose, he missed a lot of open guys. Well, if he can hit some of those guys, maybe it becomes a little bit more interesting. But man, I think this is going to be a tough one here. A really tough one for the Auburn offense. Georgia starting to round into form defensively. Found themselves really six quarters ago. Didn't play great last week against UAB. But I do think that was kind of a, you know, go through the motions type of affair. I would anticipate a good performance from the Georgia defense this week, knowing that there's blood in the water based on what they saw on tape from the AM game with the Auburn Tigers. I also want to remind everybody this is the 10th year anniversary of the prayer in Jordan Hare. It's like, I can't believe it's been 10 years. <laughs> I mean, 10 years. Obviously, Auburn went to the BCS championship. They came up short to Florida State, but they had that fourth and 18. Nick Marshall heaved it up. It bounced off Josh Harvey Clemens, found its way into the hands of Ricardo Lewis, and they had the game-winning you know, game winning 73-yard touchdown uh, with 25 seconds left in the game. So the fact that it's a 10-year anniversary kind of blew my mind as I was thinking about that. So figured I'd put that on your radar as well. Michigan on the road at Nebraska. Nebraska's actually doing a pretty good job running the football. Nearly 235 points a game, uh, yards a game. That's the sixth most in the FBS. They've rushed for at least 200 uh, yards in three straight games. It's the longest streak since 2018. Uh, the problem is Nebraska has not fared well in matchups like this. They have lost 13 consecutive games against AP top five teams. Second longest losing streak in the AP poll era. They lost 16 straight from 1936 to 1958. So they haven't won in a game like this since they beat number two Oklahoma in 2001. So it's been a really long time. I just want to remind everybody, though, quickly, and I don't think anyone's looking at Nebraska as a you know contender this year, okay? If something happens, my goodness, that'd be an amazing story, but I, I don't necessarily see it happening like that. But Matt Rule's first year at Baylor, they finished 111. They weren't good. 
but they gave the best team in their conference that year. That was Oklahoma. They gave the best team in their conference that year a real scare, a real scare. So if you look back at Matt Rule's track record, he's a giant killer a little bit. Maybe he makes this game super competitive. I, I don't know. Michigan hasn't been tested. They can now go on the road. We'll see how they fare. I, I think Michigan wins the game convincingly, but either way, it will be interesting to see if Matt Rule can pull out a little magic against the Wolverines. A couple other fun games that are of note, maybe flying under the radar just a little bit, but ones that really intrigue me. West Virginia and TCU. Winner goes to 4-1. and one. Now, TCU have obviously won three straight since the opening day defeat at the hands of Colorado, but they have not exactly fared great against West Virginia over the years. Last year, they actually ended a four-game losing streak to the Mountaineers. Now, they beat them 41-31, and they're trying to win consecutive games over West Virginia for the first time since 2014-2015. We all remember what TCU looked like in, in those days. They were excellent. Obviously, almost a playoff contender in 2014. A lot of people thought they should have gotten in. But 2015, of course, another really good team. So we'll be interesting to see which team can get to 4-1. and one. Neil Brown, they've done a pretty dang good job up there in Morgantown this year. It's been fun to watch that turnaround happen just a little bit. You got Michigan State and Iowa. Totals 36.5. Coobs loves the over. I wouldn't touch the over with a 10-foot pole. Uh, I don't know how you can justify taking an over in an Iowa game right now. Michigan State's pretty good against the run. I think this game's going to be low scoring. I think it's going to be close. So uh, if Iowa's going to put a bunch of points on the board, it's going to have to be through the air. And I'm not convinced that they can do it, at least at the moment. Missouri and Vandy. Missouri's trying to get to 5-0 and for the second time since joining the SEC. They won their first seven games in 2013 en route to an SEC East title and a Cotton Bowl win over Oklahoma State. So a lot on the line as Missouri goes to Vandy this weekend. Texas A&M and Arkansas, a game that is, that is shockingly under the radar. I mean, this is usually one of the bigger games of the weekend. Arkansas hasn't necessarily lived up to their end of the billing, and I think that's part of the reason why. Texas A&M's won 10 of 11 against Arkansas since they joined the SEC. That record makes the series seem a lot more lopsided you know, as it was. But six of the Aggies' wins in the series have been by a single score. So this game has been a coin flip every week. We know Arkansas has had their fair share of struggles, and we know A&M's been a little up and down as well, but A&M's dominated the series of late. Another thing of note, Connor Wigman, just hate that he's going to be unavailable the rest of the year. He's off to such a great start, hurt his ankle last week, and now in steps Max Johnson, who did a nice job in relief, a really nice job in relief last week against Auburn. The game was still in balance, threw for 123 and a couple touchdowns, and they outscored him 21-7 to in the second half. So he did a pretty good job under the circumstances. It always, it always shows you, man, quality depth at the quarterback spot is of the utmost importance with how much quarterbacks are running now and how many hits they're taking. The one problem with Max Johnson is he has at times turned the football over and Arkansas has forced eight turnovers this season. That's the most in the SEC. They've also scored a conference high 38 points off turnovers. So if Max Johnson's not seeing it real well, and if they're not doing a great job being methodical with how he's distributing the football, that could be a little tricky knowing how opportunistic Arkansas has been up to this point. And then finally, Washington, I think one of the best teams in college football, top three, top four, top five, however you have them fit, everybody is loving what they've seen from Washington. I've been on the call for a Washington game in the past, a Washington team that was coming off a playoff appearance, I believe it was 2017, and they went to Arizona State and lost to a very average, very average Arizona State team and looked terrible in the, out, in the performance. So for whatever reason, the desert has not been kind to the Huskies in the past. They now have to go and take on Arizona in Tucson. The question mark remains, is Jaden Delora, the quarterback for Arizona, will he be available? Had an ankle injury late in the third quarter and was in a walking boot after the game against Stanford. Well, in steps Noah Fafita. He's a sophomore. Uh, first meaningful snaps of his career against Stanford last week, but he led Arizona on a game-winning touchdown drive. Also had the game-clinching possession. He was four for four for 47, had two carries for nine yards. And also had the six-yard keeper on an RPO for the go-ahead drive. So he is a 
I mean, he is a solid piece. And if you listen to Jed Fish, the head coach of Arizona, he said, we will not hesitate whatsoever. Jaden can't go. We have the utmost belief in Noah. And we believe that he will run the offense and that will not miss a beat. So something to watch there too. Washington looks like gangbusters, but for whatever reason, the desert has been a troublesome spot for them in the past. Can they keep the hot streak going when they take on Arizona this week? That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Please continue to like, rate, and subscribe. It really helps us out. It really helps the show out. Wherever you get your podcast, please just hit that subscribe button. Give us a five-star rating. That'd be amazing. We so appreciate it. If you're here with us via the ESPN YouTube channel, hit that thumbs up. It means a lot to us to know that you guys are listening and liking what we're putting out every single week. We work hard on these previews, and we really hope that they have you as prepared as humanly possible going into what should be a terrific Week 5 slate here in college football. For all of us here at Always College Football, for Mark, Jake, Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day, and remember, it's Always College Football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.